Good morning. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the April 28, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. We're amidst our spring fun drive, and I implore you to think about where you would get this programming. Were we not around? We are here to provide the alternative perspective, the dig deeper perspective, the way Heather McCoy does on the Heather McCoy show, the way I try to, the way the irreverent jaunty Weekly Signals does it. We do it here on KUCI. The number to call is 949-824-5824. And we're also on the web at KUCI.org to make your pledge electronically to help us out in the Spring Fund Drive now until May 8th. Well, on the show today, I'm going to have on Jason Karlowish. Dr. Jason Karlowish is a bioethicist who's written a wonderful piece of historic fiction entitled Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont. Based on a true story, his novel will be the platform for which we'll cover medical research values from the 19th century to the present. Then, UCI professor Daphne Lay will present an upcoming production that will be staged May 4th and 5th entitled Diversique. It is an original play researched, adapted, written, and performed by UCI drama students. Now the third annual event. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Dr. Jason Karlowish, author of a very smart work of historic fiction entitled Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont, the subject of today's interview. Not just on community radio, Jason Karlowish is everywhere you'd like to see a conversant bioethicist. He's on radio networks around the nation, the New York Times opinion section, Senate Select Committee on Aging and the Department of Health and Human Services, Subcommittee on the Inclusion of Individuals with Impaired Decision-Making in Research, and collaborations with the American Bar Association, American Association of Retired Persons, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the State of Vermont, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, and the U.S. Government Accountability Office. He is a member of the Board of Directors of the Greenwall Foundation and the American Bar Association's Commission on Law and Aging. He is currently serving on the Institute of Medicine's Committee on the Public Health Dimensions of Cognitive Aging. May is booked solid with talks and lectures pertaining to Alzheimer's and related aging subjects. This writer and physician, Jason Karlowish, received his B.S. and his M.D. at Northwestern University and trained in internal and geriatric medicine at Johns Hopkins University and the University of Chicago. He comes to us today from Philadelphia. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Jason Karlowish. Well, thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I would like to start. There are so many literary slates of hand, wonderful touches that I'd planned on, in your book that I plan on leaving that up to every listener's discoveries once they get a chance to read Open Wound and move on to, as I said earlier, to the overarching themes of medical ethics from that period and on to the present. Jason, what 
was your motivation for undertaking this project at its earliest stage and over time? As a physician training in medical school, we would routinely learn about, medical students routinely learn about the story of William Beaumont and his patient Alexis Saint-Martin when they're studying uh, gastric uh, patho- uh, digest- the pathophysiology of digestion. Uh, and uh, it's when you reach the learning about how the human stomach works that often they'll mention the case of Alexis Saint-Martin, the fur trapper who was shot, developed a gastrocutaneous fistula, and his physician who saved his life transformed him into a research subject. So it was always there. And then, though, when I was doing my bioethics fellowship at the University of Chicago, I was very attuned to the issues around um, the ethics of human subjects research as well as the ethics of being a physician. And this case was represented to me, and I thought, you know what, that really makes a great story and needs to be told. And then years passed, and I finally turned to the project. And by then, I had been a physician practicing and doing research. And I said to myself, you know, we don't need to look at the history of this. We need to tell the story of it so that the facts don't get in the way and the truth, if you will, about the challenges that physicians face on a daily basis being a physician, uh, serving their patients, but also serving their careers, serving science. And so it struck me as a perfect story uh, to be told as a story as opposed to a history. And you, I I just, one reference to the, the literary aspect here is that you really put it in the the times, sensibilities, the, the language, the tone, the word choice, it's all about the 19th century. It's phenomenal that you were able to, uh, I, I, for me, uh, that you were able to assume that whole time period in the whole way you did. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, Open Wound, the tragic obsession of Dr. William Beaumont is set in the early 1800s. Um, and to occupy that space, I tried to occupy what it would be like to be a up from your own uh, uh, bootstraps uh, physician uh, training in that period of time and trying to and practicing medicine and so I spent a lot of time um, not just simply reading about the life of William Beaumont of which there are some very well done biographies and short histories but the time period and I dug up some old medical journals that I found and would just read them to get a sense of the language I read books about what it would like to be a sort of struggling middle-class person in the up, uh, east coast of America, moving west, uh, read about you know the very contentious history of America's western move in that period of time, and just tried to occupy the space. And then the other key thing was the language at the time. So, I mean, it's, 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 I don't pretend that the characters are speaking how people spoke then, but one thing I was keen to was, for example, any word I used, if I wasn't confident that it would have been used, then I would look it up and make sure. Okay. So that's shows. why, for example, there's no okays in the book, like you just said, because back then okay wasn't a very common word, so had, no one says okay. It had been a, I think that's a, it's an Indian expression, I was told. It has a curious history. Okay does. Some think it was uh, related to, I forget the presidential candidate, uh, old Kinderhook. Um, he's okay. Um, but yeah, it may have other origins. But, but nonetheless, it was not as viral a word as it is now. So that's one very particular example. But yeah, learning how to think and speak and talk like a solid middle-class physician, which is what William Beaumont was, was something I really took great effort to do. Yeah. And I just want to go back to the your reference to the fistula. It is 
it was an opening in Alexis Saint Martin's um, stomach that yeah. uh, that Doctor Beaumont took. Uh, it gradually dawned on him that there was an opportunity, a window of opportunity for him to figure out how to show the digestive process, how examining that, probing that, yeah. and with uh, in, internal to the stomach as well as extracting the gastric juices for to examine how food outside of the stomach would break down different kinds of as you mentioned you know 20th of 19th century uh, foods so uh, yeah so uh, which i also made great pains to how what did, what did they eat back then as opposed to now yeah the book open wound uh, the tragic obsession of dr william beaumont opens on the day of when alexis Saint-Martin is accidentally shot at a remote fur trapping post Dr. Beaumont, who's the military surgeon at the base, is called to his aid. They all but leave him for dead, but things change. Ultimately, Beaumont, who had been a military surgeon in the War of 1812, was skilled at gunshot wounds, and he saved the guy's life, but the wound never fully healed, leaving essentially a a hole the size of a half-eagle dollar, as Beaumont describes it, directly into his stomach, which if it wasn't plugged, whatever the man ate would come come out the hole. And at some point, this physician, who was essentially trained just to be a hardworking general practitioner surgeon, suddenly said, you know, this is like a frontier of discovery, and it's mine, and I'm going to discover it. He had no training in research, no particular interest in research prior to that. And there were people doing research then. It wasn't like the case that no one was doing physiology research. But he went ahead and slowly transformed his patient into not just his patient, but an object of discovery. And so they had a very interesting, curious relationship that started out as you saved my life and ended up being essentially almost a master-slave relationship. Now, before we go into that kind of uh, that duality there, the the literary biographical device, Jason, that you use summoning Benjamin Franklin's autobiography of moral perfection, how did you figure that into your cautionary tale? Yeah, of- so Beaumont was, uh, that's, that actually happened. So William Beaumont, when he was actually traveling from up New York State where he lived um, and kind of failed as a physician due to catastrophic economic times, he kind of rebooted his life and got a recommission in the military and traveled to Michigan, to Mackinac Island, which is where the events would take place. And it's in that journey that he was reading in a newspaper a reprinting of Benjamin Franklin's um, section of his autobiography on the, the Franklin had this virtue checklist to help improve your moral character. And Beaumont was so enamored of it that he actually copied it into his notebook. Yes. And I was reading his notebook and realized... You know, this guy really wanted to get ahead in the world. He really, you know, wanted to read self-help books to make him a better person. And and I thought, what a perfect um, uh, framing for kind of the ethical tension that William Beaumont felt, which was, I want to be a better person, so I'm going to copy William Franklin's, um, you know, guidebook for moral perfection that he wrote in his autobiography, and I'm going to do that. And in his diary, he, you read him, you know, putting ticks into his virtue book, and then, of course, he goes off and does this to his patient, kind of, a, you know, not really kind of adhering to his virtue book, if you will. Right. And so it kind of captured, you know, the American spirit of, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to read a self-help book to do it, you know, and yet still mistakes are made. <laughs> well, I, I want to draw with, in terms of the morality and all that, um, there is a kind of a, a social... Uh, a major of major proportion uh, morality play there is a fistula you could argue in how the west was being taken over by uh white europeans from the the native yeah. population 
That's yeah, one of the issues that came out to me as I was doing the research on the book was, and it's something that I feel now, and my colleagues I think feel now, and as well, which is the context, the times within which you function as a physician or as a researcher, uh, very much influence what you do and don't do, um, and. Uh, both as a researcher and also the way you practice medicine. And the more I read about the history of 19th century, early 19th century America, it was this fascinating history of a country that sort of exited its adolescence, having defeated the British or managed to not be defeated by the British, if you will, in the War of 1812, and sort of was like, oh, my gosh, we actually have a country, and what are we going to do? And, well, that meant let's go west. And it's in the context of our rapid and aggressive western expansion that William Beaumont was practicing medicine and practicing his science, uh, albeit amateur science, frankly. And I argue in the book, without arguing it, but by narratively I make right. the case that that context of westward expansion, of going ahead, of discovering, of there's wealth to be had in the unknown, very much influenced and framed the way Beaumont approached his own patient, who was in some sense a frontier of discovery for himself. And, right. and, and I think that shaped his behavior. And so the idea of indenture comes into play, the indenture of the patient, while you said in the context, the indenture of slaves, the indenture of the Native Americans. It's all happening. Exactly. Yeah, so an open wound, one of the points I drew out in the novel um, was, was the social context of essentially class differences, status-based differences. And I think that those very much influenced the way Dr. Beaumont approached his patient. Namely, you know, um, Alexis Saint-Martin was a French-Canadian um, who was under an indenture, which was kind of a short-term, essentially, slavery agreement that you essentially surrendered your liberty to your employer. The first and French Canadians were also sort of thought of in a very disparaging way in the United States. They were called gumbos uh, in your book. That was the term yeah. used? That was the that was one of the many kind of derogatory phrases, much like some of the phrases that are used to describe people who come from south of our United States borders. Um, and I I think that those kind of perceptions, social mores that surrounded the class and status based differences, uh, very much influenced the way uh, uh, Beaumont approached this man who was from a different social strata and class, and not even of the culture. Namely, he was French-Canadian, and English was not his first language. And, and there's a lot of parallels, in some sense, between yes. um, the way he treated his patient and the way, for example, we treat people who are from, not from America now, particularly, I think, not so much north of our borders, but south of our borders. So who, then, was has been your intended audience uh, because you're talking about you've been lecturing on ethics with your medical students, but you're you're reaching so many sectors of society with your historic fiction. Um, so tell us whom, whom you're trying to reach. Yeah, I wrote Open Wound, the tragic obsession of Dr. William Beaumont, to reach the broad audience of just people, uh, adults, who want to think about um, the social, cultural, uh, and ethical contexts that frame uh the work that physicians do as taking care of their patients, as well as the work that they do when they decide to become researchers on their patients. And, you know, while the events in Open Wound are very unique and particular and historical, I mean, he meets, Mark, he meets you know, uh, Van Buren, you know, right. <laughs> you know the, the Indian Wars and whatnot. I mean, they're very unique in the, down in St. Louis, when St. Louis is a boomtown city. For all those particularities that are historical, 
it's actually, I think, in some sense, a very contemporary book in terms of uh, the struggles that Beaumont goes through, uh, the context in which he makes his de- uh, decisions or fails to make his decisions. And so in that sense, it's designed for Americans, humans, to sort of think about, again, the social, cultural, and ethical context within which physicians practice, as well as also decide, instead of taking care of these patients, I'm actually going to study my patients. And I find that you use the word tragic in your title, you use it advisedly. I mean, it, it's always used wrong, but in this case, it is the, it's the focus of the aspirational son of a farmer who wants to launch an a, a aspiring medical career, and the, he chooses this opportunity he finds um, in this relationship that he's working with this patient. Where yeah, no, I- Beaumont was a very contemporary man. He came from humble roots, a Connecticut farmer's son, you know, I, I actually, my, my family came from Connecticut, and farming in Connecticut certainly could make a living, but this was, we're not talking amber waves of grain, farming, you know. So he came from humble roots and essentially left home when he was 17 to try and make it as a shopkeeper in New York State. Uh, didn't succeed at that, became a school teacher, didn't succeed at that, and then said, well, look, you know, I'm going to make a career as a doctor. You know, and he was very much, this is going to be my job. I'm going to have a career, I'm going to have a family, I'm going to make money. You know, I'm going to get ahead. And he was very much like anyone now who kind of comes from, you know, solid middle class, lower middle class roots and wants to get ahead, you know, and, and very ambitious, very ambitious um, man. And uh, very, in that sense, very modern. Um, he was not someone who was going to be bound by what people like him can and can't do. You know, he was going to do what he could do given his talents and his raw emotion of ambition. Of course, That's you know, his hubris. he didn't... St- yeah, well, then he stumbles, exactly. He then stumbles on this great case, if you will, and sees, oh, my gosh, this guy is going to be my ticket, not just to a comfortable living that I hope I could have, you know, when I first studied medicine, but he's going to make me famous. He's going to make me money. And, of course, you know, the tragedy of his ambition is that, of course, he that's, you know, I'm not spoiling the book, but is anyone no. ever satisfied when they want those kind of things, you know? <laughs> well, but he, he was under sort of uh, undermined with where he was posted for an indefinite while. And the, these were some uh, places and they, they give me goosebumps, the settings that you where, where you follow him. And I'm not going to give that away. I'm just saying, folks, it gives you goosebumps because we all know what's looming with the collision between the populations up there in uh, Yeah, think, the things region. got ugly in Prairie du Chien, which is where he, uh, the, the dog prairie is it, called. It got very uh, ugly. And it was on, it's just like on the horizon. And it's just, it, it's goosebump raising uh, how you do it. Well, for those of you who've just joined Ask a Leader, you're tuned to uh, KUCI 88.9 FM. And folks in Philly are hopefully streaming live on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Dr. Jason Carlowish. Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics, and Health Policy and Alzheimer's Research at the University of Pennsylvania, talking from his enthralling historical novel entitled Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont. It is based on a true story. It's published by the University of Michigan, I hasten to say. Sorry, I didn't get that in there earlier. So the notion of contracts, the covenant, between doctor and patient, circle around in your novel, as you said, this very contemporary setting. The, um, we, we talked a little bit about the concerns of indenture. Let's, let's talk 
in more detail about this contract, the fragile symmetry of this relationship, or the symmetry, maybe the lack of symmetry, the asymmetry yeah. of the relationship between physician and patient. And we're going to move through that that contemporary 19th century setting to more into the 20th and 21st centuries. But let's talk about that. There are many things that those two entities, those two parties in the covenant, the contract of patient-doctor relationship. So let's talk about that asymmetry and uh, what that means for how medicine is practiced and how research is pursued. Well, Dr. Beaumont, in reality, this is much of the book really does cleave close to the truth. I just sometimes rearrange events and otherwise sort of reorder things a bit. And I explained that in the epilogue of the book when I did that. But among the true events in the book, most of which are true, um, is he ultimately, Dr. Beaumont, had his patient, Alexis Saint-Martin, sign a covenant uh, where essentially they agreed to the terms and conditions upon which Dr. Beaumont could uh, perform experiments on his on his patient. And it was a complicated, worded, essentially, con- and to read it is to read like a, you know, amateur legal contract. And it was drawn up by a lawyer and, uh, in Plattsburgh, New York, and signed with witnesses. Um, uh, and when you read it, it, has, it, it is nowhere close to the kind of language and writing that you would think an ordinary person would understand, let alone someone who was, you know, semi-conversant uh, uh, in English and, 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 and certainly was illiterate. Uh, Alexis signed it with a mark, for example. He and they didn't know that. They were shocked to see that, that that's all you can write down. And the, and the convoluted, very legalistic document was all in English. He, he could have no way of understood the details. Yeah, and it shows kind of the twisting of their relationship. I mean, they start out as doctor-patient. You saved my life, I've been shot by a gun, and all but left for dead. And in the end, well, not the end-end, but along the way, that relationship transforms into essentially employer-employee, frankly almost master-slave, because the agreement, when you read it, it very much kind of harkens almost to an indenture-type agreement, although it's not officially and formally an indenture. But, you know, it was part of the tense and evolving and, frankly, protean ethic that existed, which was on what conditions can a physician engage a person not to take care of them, but to study them. And, And in that sense, it was a very kind of, you know, anticipatory agreement to the informed consent forms we give human subjects of research to lay out the terms and conditions, if you will, of what they're going to get involved in. Um, Although, again, I think that what Beaumont wrote, this Articles of Covenant and Agreement, or really the lawyer wrote, um, was essentially an employee contract. I mean, he was essentially buying Alexis's body for a year to study him in return for paying him. So the idea of contract, as we know, as, as Erwin Chemerinsky would say here, that it, it was not a negotiated document and that it was, uh, for Alexis Saint-Martin, it was um, a very asymmetric arrangement. And uh, there's more literary devices later on where it's that relationship is brought, and there's a peer aspect to the reckoning, the understanding of the patient, uh, seeing there are similarities in both of them aspiring to leave the career behind, far behind what their fathers similarly held. So that was yeah. Fair. There is a theme there. You know, Alexis is a fairly we don't. I don't get into a lot of interiority with Alexis, and you know, part of me was 
you know, that'd be a tough book to write, namely the perspective of an illiterate French-Canadian fur trapper in the early 19th century. And, you know, the better, greater author would potentially have said, I'll tell this story from Alexis's perspective. Okay. Nonetheless, you know, in dialogue and engagement, I have the two men, you know, in interacting. They, they weren't very friendly. I mean, I, I, I never got a sense, and nor did I ever feel that, you know, while there would be the initial kind of awe for my doctor. Um, but one literary, or I will say I took, took a, this is my own a guess is that at some point the two guys would start to talk in some effort as man-to-man and start to kind of lay out and begin to see some similarities between them. And that does open, but then that door, I think, rapidly closed. I, I think Beaumont just was not capable of that depth of emotional understanding. And I, and I say that because the historical record, to the bitter end, Beaumont actually was very um, contemptuous of Alexis. Um, in, in the end, he was he had nothing but negative comments to say about Alexis. And so I gave a window of opportunity for empathy and emotional engagement and then closed it. <laughs> well, I, with the sort of the superiority that Dr. Beaumont had to comport himself with, it would, would not have left room for the, the kind of inroad of understanding that Alexis and Martin had about what they were, they were both fledgling in their respective kind of career pursuits. It's sort of yeah, and in that sense, Beaumont was um, ethically and I think even morally um, uh, immature. Um, I think that he, you know, he wasn't amoral. I mean, Beaumont was not, you know, some Mengele character, you know. Th- those are not, those are somewhat, you know, titillating characters to describe, like a horror story. I think what makes Dr. Beaumont interesting and why the novel I found fun to write and still enjoy, you know, talking about yes. it is that Beaumont was a morally complex character. I mean, he, he did know right from wrong. You know, he was not That's the tragedy. Um, a, a sadist, but he had these failures of, of, of moral understanding and empathy with his patient that really had him do things that even, even then, observers of what he did, when he started publishing his work, said, you know, this seems a little excessive and a little over the top, you know. Right. Um, and that was his failure. Um, uh, that was his moral failure, I believe. His hubris, his up, his downfall, as it were. Yeah, no, I mean, he, for all of, Beaumont very much presented himself as the in-control white man. You know, he was, he was a father, he you know, married, he was a father, he had a business, he was, he was very a military personnel. And yet he was as passionate as the Indians he was dismissive of for their passion, you know. Right, right. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, it's you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine here on Ask a Leader. We are in the middle of the spring fun drive. It goes from now until May 8th. And uh, bringing you programming, I don't, I'm not sure we're going to hear uh, any other station in Orange County bring on the likes of Dr. Jason Cardowish, Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics, and Health Policy Bioethicist, Alzheimer's Research at the University of Pennsylvania, and talking richly about his his writing career along with a, a, just an amazing geriatric research career at, and with bioethics. And so I, I'm going to transition then into, uh, we're, we're, talk, we, we're first talking about the, the fragile symmetry, the relationship between the physician and the patient. Uh, we've, we've made some progress, but uh, it passed. Uh, we still had the Tuskegee experiment with inflicting syphilis and not treating an African-American uh, indentured population, a, a fragile, vulnerable population, and many other sorts of travesties. Um, while we talk about 
training the professional class, I would like for Jason, for you to sort of interject where where there's progress and where you see that the the topical aspect of open wound is really very universal in still keeping that symmetry, that fragile symmetry intact uh, in the in our contemporary time. So I, yes. Yeah, so, so I think we know when Beaumont came of age and grew up and, and practiced medicine, you know, the ethic of respect for autonomy was still a protean ethic. Certainly in medicine, it was not a realized ethic. The notion of obtaining informed consent from your patient was you know, there in a protean sense, but by no means operationalized the way we think of it now. Moreover, in society, the notion of respecting autonomy was really still also an emerging concept. You know, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. I mean, that theme was there, and yet, you know, if you were a woman, you couldn't hold property or vote. You know, if you were of African descent, you couldn't even be, um, you know, you could be owned. So, I mean, the, the American experiment that was unfolding was one of, you know, to whom is owed um, autonomy and, and respect for their autonomy. And, and you know, and, and I, I don't discredit, you know, I, you know, Beaumont was only as good as the times he was in, you know. And I do think the arc of history is bent by the time we, in, you know, leave the 20th century that we generally recognize that all adults are owed their autonomy and autonomy, and it ought to be respected regardless of their gender or their race, etc. But yet, you know, I think we still are struggling with that as a society. You know, to what degree should we be respecting the autonomy of individuals who are disabled, um, who are not uh, American citizens, um, uh, uh, who are uh, LGBT? Um, you know, so I think the the great American experiment of respecting adults' ability to be the adults they want to be is still ongoing. But I think in medicine we've operationalized that ethic of respect for autonomy through this practice of informed consent, such that I, I find now when I teach informed consent to medical students, they sort of look at me and like, well, of course you should do this. Why is, where's the ethical challenge here? You know, it's very interesting. Whereas when I trained, it was still this contentious issue of, you know, why should you get it, et cetera, et cetera. So the arc of history, I think, has bent towards justice on this matter. What I picked up and that I think remains a contemporary challenge that existed in Beaumont's time, but I think now is an even greater challenge, is the sort of entrepreneurial spirit um, and the social-cultural context around uh, financial success that surrounds medicine yes. and now medical research even more so. Um, and I do think that this is a new and even greater challenge than certainly in Dr. Beaumont's time in 1820, namely that you know medical research is a big business. And I do think that that big business definitely influences and intrudes into um, our morals and our practice as physicians and as researchers. And it's something that I think society needs to scrutinize more. Not only medical research, but the practice of medicine is where there might be uh, some more lucrative procedural options exercised that may not be in the the, the patient's best interest. There's not a consent form in that. It's, it's only implied with the, the contract of a patient signing on for care with that uh, medical practitioner. But that's... Yeah, that no, also... I mean, doctors are, um, you know, doctors are, in some sense, small businessmen. I think that model uh, is fading. Uh, but, you know, at the peak of Medicare finance medicine after 1965, which we're, you know, approaching the 50th anniversary of Medicare, you know, for a brief shining moment, medicine enjoyed, you know, a very lucrative p period where, 
you know, we paid them what they wanted, and their behavior showed us that, you know, that while they delivered medical care, and, and no question we made progress in treating diseases, um, you know, we also made progress in uh, uh, remunerating those things that could be charged a lot for. And, and you know, I, I, you know, doctors are human, and, you know, they want to succeed, they want to make money, they want to get ahead, and and, and, and we, we have seen that and continue to see that uh, in, the, uh, in the practice of medicine. Well, Jason, when you were talking about how current medical students see as self-evident, those protections in the consenting and uh, assenting for uh, people yeah. that are vulnerable being uh, not adults yet, it's in, in that process, uh, I, I just want to get your sense of how much this curriculum is attending to, the, to bioethics and uh, whether... Uh, the natural or the selection process of medical students is diverging or is it converging with an ethical standard that meets with your approval? Well, um, there's two, two, two parts to your question right there. I, the first part is, you know, to what degree are medical schools paying attention to teaching right. their students about the core aspects of the ethics of the doctor-patient relationship and the doctor's role and position in society? And the answer to that is I think there's been a lot of progress um, you know, uh, with institutionalizing that kind of training and those topics within the curriculum um, at medical schools in the United States. Um, I, I think you, it, it, it's essentially expected and standard and, and done. Um, the, 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 the second part of your question is, is, is an interesting one. You know, in other words, who should be a doctor? You know, how should we be picking the next, you know, generations of medical students, not just simply to make sure that they're technically competent, but that they're going to practice, you know, ethical medicine and, and ethical research, medical research. And, and you know, I, I, this is one of these topics that, uh, you know, could, uh, could be its own radio show. I, I, I will say I've been very in, interested in changes made in the medical college admission tests um, uh, okay. requirements coming up, which are going to ask students to show proficiencies in sciences other than um, the standard kind of, you know, physics, uh, uh, biochemistry, but also in um, areas of uh, psychology, um, uh, uh, decision-making. And, and I do think, you know, entry into those social science fields begins to sort of say to students, you know, um, if you're going to start taking care of humans, you need to understand not just simply humans as, you know, molecules and, 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 and organs and, and whatnot, but, you know, as, as, as emotional and cognitive beings. And, and so I, 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 I realize you say, well, where's the ethic in psychology? But, but I, I do think broadening the requirements that medical students need to understand, uh, the fields they need to know, will, I think, broaden their capacity to see their patients as humans. I personally think that um, the ideal medical student to me is someone who's had a rich understanding in the cultural and humanistic aspects of, 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 of disciplines and then sort of added the science on top of that. I think that kind of person gets the sort of inherent narrative basis and human basis of medicine, not to criticize those who have purely pursued science because I think they can have those exposure, you know, through their reading and whatnot, but, but that to me is the sort of ideal combination. But is that latter aspect, the cultural and the other aspects that you're talking about, is that really figuring very uh, sufficiently in the, the process now? That's, I think that's a, an emerging quality. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you, uh, I, that in some sense, that's an empirical question, which I'm not equipped to answer, which, you know, ask, would ask questions of, you know, 
um, how over time have the admission standards at medical schools changed and what's required of students. I will say that, you know, that question, uh, you know, what, what kind of student do we want to admit um, to assure that they have the kind of character to be a physician is one that's plagued medical education for since the Flexner report, you know, in the early 19-teens, uh, you know, when, when uh, Dr. Flexner traveled America to, to decide, uh, well, he wasn't a physician, actually, but, you know, what is the right way to design a medical curriculum? And, and it's an ongoing debate or dialogue. I think it's dialogue is probably the right word in the medical profession, which is, you know, what should we be asking of medical students in terms of the tests they take, the classes they take, the essays they do, the interviews, questions we ask them, to come up with some notion of, you know, you're the right kind of character for what we, what we want. Because we can all think about practitioners that are, uh, and I'm certainly speak, thinking of a very particular one in, in geriatrics over 10, 12 years ago, and uh, it remains a sort of a salient example of there, there was a medical mind, but there was no mind about the patient. And there, was no con- there was no effort to make that physician's own language be understood, and I don't think they heard the patient. It was very interesting to, to witness that. And so I'm just wondering, as this becomes a hyper-competitive selection process, if the numbers, the grade point averages right off the top, are, are heavily balanced or weighted uh, toward that kind of performance. Yeah, I'm and, not too worried about the GPAs and whatnot, uh, causing people to not be humanistic. The biggest worry I have, not, let me strike the idea of biggest, but one worry I have in medical training is the sort of exclusion of the value of the patient history more and more from um, understanding disease in the patient. Yes. So, you know, um, and one technology that's to blame here is the rise of the, of the electronic medical record. I okay. mean, one of the sort of things that's happened in medicine is the use of electronic medical record to record patient information and put it into a chart. There are enormous advantages of the electronic medical record, huge advantages for synthesizing, organizing, collating data, transferring data across sites of care, real benefits for reducing the harms of uh, uh, transitions of care, uh, real benefits for taking care of complex patients. So let me not in any way be known as someone who doesn't like the electronic medical record. Having said that, what I've noticed is that it's a tool that prevents physicians more and more from just writing down what the patient is saying and listening to what the patient is saying. But instead, the, it, the device, the technology has them clicking on boxes and recording uh, preset notes that, you know, about what the patient said. And it's really limiting um, the engagement with the patient's words, even to the level of staring at the screen and the keyboard right. rather than looking right. at the patient. That's come up many different times in many different ways. Well, I... I We've left a lot of topics open, and they all need more coverage, more scrutiny. I wanted to let the the book, such a pleasurable read, Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont that Dr. Jason Carlewish has written. I wanted that to be the focus and let its very 19th century contemporary themes be uh, as universal as we could make them, and perhaps we can revisit some of these other larger topics. And uh, I, I just laud what you do in your career as well, in geriatricians. And I, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've got your your month of May is all booked with some terrific lectures going on. Your talks you're giving. Are you going to be in Southern California in the next half year? 
Um, I very well may be. Uh, I have some uh, very good collaborators at the University of California, Irvine, at the Alzheimer's Disease Josh Center Grill. there. Yes. And uh, we are planning actually a, a, a small um, uh, a, a gathering of some researchers to look at issues in the use of technologies to diagnose mild cognitive impairment. So I very well may be out in Irvine in the fall of 2015. Okay. Uh, people can I have a website, jasoncarlowish.com, and that's where many of my articles and talks and whatnot are all we'll, summarized. We'll include them on the summary of the, for the podcast, uh, all of them, and, and also your blog, Making Sense of AD, because Alzheimer's research is a major part of your research. So uh, I want to thank you, Jason Carlowish, for all your time today on well, Ask thank you, Leader. Claudia. Thank you. He's the author of Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont, Researching and Integrating a Bioethic Dimension into the Training and the Continuum Medical Education Training of Health Practitioners in the Country. Thanks again for, for being on the show. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Take care. Take care, everyone in Irvine. Uh, thank Bye. You. Bye-bye. <laughs> Well, I'm going to be back after a a short break with Professor of Drama, Daphne Lay, but I just wanted to pitch uh, one more time for now at KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. I just want to point out, you know, folks, on Ask a Leader, before John Oliver covered the homophobic legislation in Uganda, we covered it here. And before Sergio Scapertis was talking about the the travesties upon the the Greek economy as the euro was wrecking havoc around the southern countries. We had him on this show. And before Jay Familietti was on 60 Minutes, was on to have a smiley, we had him here on Ask a Leader talking about our, our water availability. So I want you to think carefully about where you're getting your digging deeper news and uh, narratives here on KUCI, please call us 949-824-5824. Well, we will be back after a very short break to bring on, as I said, Daphne Lay and give you some more to ponder in this arena. Thanks for staying with us here on Ask a Leader. Welcome back to the show. My last guest is UCI drama professor, Dr. Daphne Lei, internationally known for her scholarly work on Chinese opera, Asian American theater, as well as intercultural and transnational performance. Her intellectual interest is what, as what she calls the contact zone where conflicts occur and solutions are sought where hybridity is nurtured or resisted, where identity is challenged and performed. Writing and, lect- and lecturing both in English and in Chinese, Daphne Lei counts among her many scholarly publications, Operatic China, Staging Chinese Identity Across the Pacific, and Alternative Chinese Opera in the Age of Globalization, Performing Zero. That's a, the latter's that wonderful title. She completed her PhD in drama from Tufts University and was Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in drama at Stanford University. She joined UCI in 2001. Her other worldly dynamism, 
certainly draws from which she descends a long line of highly prized Confucian scholars. I could say more about special connections, but I'm going to leave it at that. In her capacity as the director of Multicultural Spring, she joins me today in studio to present an uncanny lesson for us in Diversique, a dramatic transformation presented at the Winifred Smith Hall next Monday and Tuesday evening at 5. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Daphne, Dr. Daphne Lay. Glad to be here. We are glad to have you here in the remaining minutes of this show. Would you please, Daphne Lay, tell us about Dramatic Transformations process, it's the formula in general through which your students are selected and take on many necessary roles. Okay, um, it's a very simple idea about Dramatic Transformations. Uh, just. To bear in mind, I'm prejudiced. I think drama solves every problem. So my idea is to use drama to transform the community in this situation, United, um, the UCI community. So the way we do it is it's a, it's a three-phase process. The first phase is research phase. The second phase is creation phase. And the third phase is performance and reflection. So in the first, pa- in the first phase, we have PhD students uh, interview, survey the whole campus, uh, graduate students, and we gather the data and we transcribe the interviews and we use the data to write the play. So the second phase is the creation of the play, to write the play and to rehearse the play. And to cast the play, uh, rehearse the play. And to design, we invited designers and choreographers and everyone to create the play. And then in the last phase is to um, perform the play, and but also we'll gather post-show uh, surveys and we ask all participants to write a reflection. So the third phase is really to reflect on the the whole project. What have we done? Have we achieved anything like that? So it's a year long project. Oh, yes. And so they learn so much about, well, the the charter before them about themselves Mm -hmm. and about each other that they didn't bring to that. So this is now the third of dramatic transformations. Daphne, it's tested, but which new cohort of producers, writers, actors, and directors, uh, how, do, uh, how do they tackle this project? Well, I think every artist ha- or scholar has this problem. When you set out to do a project, you have something in mind. You have a goal, you have a plan, but everything turned out differently. <laughs> so, As well, it maybe should. Right. So this year, we actually, when I applied for the grant for the third year, I proposed to do something about, to write about, um, to, ident- to identify the progress. And because this is the third year we have done it, so to identify the progress and some kind of achievement of um, diversity students and faculty, right? So that was the goal to, to have some kind of more positive message. But once we start interviewed, and then we hear just more and more stories about, you know, resentment, unhappiness. And so pretty soon I realized that um, happy silence is not progress to allow more noises and even you know unhappy stories is progress. If we can keep doing that, we have more noise, we have more voices, more stories. And if we keep doing that and more people will hear us and dialogue will happen. So instead of presenting harmony at the end, we have cacophony. And that is something I think that's very important. So in tension and conflict, mm-hmm. we press on. Right. 
And then the important thing is to recognize that, to maybe take a moment, pause, and ponder: What did I just hear? What did I just see? And see what we can do with that. And that is what the audience gets to do. They're they're a, not, they're not really a participant in that, but maybe some of them. Some, some of them were interviewed, have been interviewed, and then so they see their stories. Okay. Put on stage, so that will be very interesting. And you know, everything is anonymous. Right, we told the interviewees that their identity won't be revealed, and then sometimes we combine two, three people's stories into one. Um, wow! But people will come to us say, "I know you're talking about my department. I know you're talking about this professor." So well, yeah. that's all right, though. Yeah, I mean, it's all right. But you're being delicate and but <laughs> but vivid. Uh, that's that's where the learning's going to happen if it's all. If there's no uh, recognition, right. like you said, yeah. no progress. Yeah, and then in the first year, when that um, th- because this grant is um, this project is funded by the graduate division, so uh, first year I was talking to um, Dean Francis Leslie. I was telling her, I said, "Well, maybe we'll create a UCI culture in which that if the professors don't want to become a character of the play or character caricature in the play, they will try to behave better." <laughs> Yeah. All right. Oh. Regulation <laughs> through dramatic <laughs> through drama. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this portion, the latter portion of the show is UCI drama professor Dr. Daphne Lay here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine streaming in uh, in the side stages of, around the the globe at, at KUCI.org. Well, as you say, Diversity K holds no punches with its contemplative string of aha moments. That's how I experienced it last year. (laughs) Just at the moment when you thought you understood something, that you had a cosmopolitan, a person has a cosmopolitan view as any prospective patron, then uh, we find out differently. Multicultural angles are not all figured out. So Mm -hmm. the dramatic transformations will surely disabuse everybody. Sure did Mm -hmm. that with me when I saw the production last year. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the topics you're taking on this year? Okay, um, so one thing, as, as I already said, the noises, I think to allow the noises to come out, that's very important. And then another thing we really want to present is the idea of um, perceptions and perspectives. Um, quoting one of the characters that, well, you see, it looks really diverse, right? But we're all living in our um, little bubbles. We're individual bubbles. So you might have this group, you might have that group, but they don't exactly talk to each other. And as you can imagine, if you look uh, from your bubble, your view might be distorted. Your perception might be distorted. So we kind of play with that idea that we present something that's controversial, and then so it's for you to decide which perspective you're going to take. You know, Daphne, I really like that sort of physical analogy that bubbles distort mm-hmm. the uh illumination the insight it's a curved lens right it's a fuzzy lens that's it's right a, so there so the bubble really goes a long way to explain how we're shortchanged in mm-hmm. our opportunities for better understanding right so one of the themes is popping bubbles hopefully we can pop more bubbles then we can begin talking to each other face to face okay well um i want to know uh, i don't remember this from last year but will religion be part of the uh, a frame of reference that would be brought up this time around. Well, unfortunately, we didn't have much um, about religion this oh, year. That's that's telling us something. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, the the difficult thing about this is we we really depend on the 
we don't we don't really invent stories. So all the stories are based on interviews. So and then when we did survey, which actually reached all graduate students, and then we also asked them if you want to be interviewed, you tell us, right? So depending on the stories we collect. And so we, if we don't find compelling story in that area, then we won't have it. Yeah. So in a, and then, but on, on the other hand, we left out a lot of great stories. So, you know, I could write two more plays <laughs> with all the okay. interviews we, we, um, we collected. Yeah. Okay. So that's material. It's not going away. It's not it's going on away. the shelf. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Good. Well, I'm just wondering, whenever I walk past the cup, the cross-cultural center, mm -hmm. I find that there is a very permeable, and that's the other the other end mm -hmm. of the, uh, the bubble metaphor, is a very permeable, conversational, reflective kind of uh, adherent to some of the projects, the movements that are going on over mm -hmm. there. So I don't know if that's one of the laboratories for diversity. I, mean, I know cross-cultural cultural and diversity are the same thing, but I, I just don't know if that's part of the laboratory there, but they, they seem to be pretty, right. pretty willing to to um, talk beyond their over into other domains from yeah. from where they're very very active. So I, it's I'm, that maybe some uh, maybe you've worked with them already, and maybe it's not a little bit. A yeah. Little, so, so again, you know, we are in our drama bubble, and so we need to okay. reach out a little bit more. All too. right. <laughs> well, I know we've got to bring on the next show shortly. Um, I just want to give you a chance, Daphne Lay, to give us some of the the lowdown on where, when, where, how, and for the dramatic transformations. And I'll put on the, the web links on the, the summary. So Okay. It's going to be May 4th and May 5th. This will be a Monday and Tuesday at 5 o'clock at Winifred Smith Hall. This is in uh, Claire Trevor uh, School of Arts. If you are coming from the humanities, you just cross the bridge and we're there. And we'll have signs all over to and guide a, you there. There's yeah. a post-show discussion and there's a reception a following both of those performances. It Definitely. at 5 yeah. o'clock. Yeah. And then because we really want to see the post-show discussion and the reception as part of the dialogue. So we... We put but, on the dialogue on stage, but we want to continue on that with the audience. Very, made very clear yeah. at, in the program there. Okay. Well, I'm so glad that you could be here. Folks, you're going to hear more details on Calvin Gant's show on Wednesday at 5 o'clock. So uh, be, be sure to stay tuned for that uh, fun drive day. I'm going to thank Professor Daphne Lay, drama professor here at UCI, who's going to be bringing transformations um, dramatic transformations with the upcoming production, the um, Diversity. That's the that's what it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll we'll stay tuned. As I said, Calvin Gant will be covering more, but we just had to make sure we got her in on our show today. Okay. So thank you. Thanks. I want to close. I want to just make a few more cases for your support of KUCI's Spring Fund Drive. Weekly Signals. It's a romp of current events show that elicits more emotions than a fast and high-scoring basketball game. Nora Kabara's Friday Afternoon Curiosity Save the Cat, an effortless and endearing lesson on bioscience. In the Garden on Thursday mornings answers my questions about dirt, plants, and water that I've never even contemplated. The Heather McCoy Show takes us to the Inland Empire, and she takes us also to a a so lovely selection of a uh, range of music from Rachel Ray's Cooking Accident. So that's two sides of her coin, the music and public affairs. Writers on Writing brings to community radio, college radio, veritable class with established and thought-provoking luminaries who regularly appear on that show. Tina's World Beats 
steps out of the western sounds into some worldly resonating and uh, rich tones that I really enjoy listening to. Party at Gatsby's, another great pr- playlist. So one more favorite show. It's the inestimable Israel Medina's Galactic Soup. I don't know how he does it, how he comes up with it. It's a veritable two-hour, I don't know what to call extravaganza Wednesday nights from 6 until 8. It's not to be missed. Well, I want to thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.